What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you once again with another brand new installment of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Alright, welcome to the show guys, I say it every week, if you did miss out on last week's episode of Sports Entertainment is Dead, you can still catch it on demand, head over to Blog Talk Radio, head over to lordsofpain.net, make sure you listen, and make sure you listen to all the great shows we have coming your way each and every single day of the week here on Lords of Pain Radio, you can do so by subscribing to your podcast provider with LOP Radio, if you're able to. And that way you'll be able to check out all our great coverage from everything from WWE to AEW to ROH to NJPW and back again. Don't miss a minute of it. And if you've got any thoughts on any of the things that I discuss on this show or any episodes of Sports Entertainment is Dead, make sure you get in contact. There's no shortage of ways that you can do that. You can find me on Twitter at LOP Plan. You can look me up on Facebook, look for Samuel Plan. You could drop me a comment on lordsofpain.net or Blog Talk Radio, any of my posts on there. You can email me, samuel.plan101 at gmail.com, or, as I would encourage you to do so, find me on LOP Forums. It's free to sign up, no obligations or anything like that, and it's the best corner of the IWC going today, so make sure you sign up, and maybe even try your hand at writing a column or two, because, of course, you can always do that, and you can catch my columns every Sunday, slash Monday this week, because I was late, uh, on lordsofpain.net, the Sunday column covering current events and this last one was my retrospective for WWE's month of April which I have to say very sadly has been a haphazard one it started in strong fashion at Wrestlemania but it seemed to only get worse and worse from there and in light of that what I thought I would do this week with rumours now circulating that Fox and USA are both piling pressure on WWE to end their brand split I thought what I would do is look at the potential challenge WWE may yet soon face in culling their Leviathan-sized roster uh, and seeing which characters I believe should be at the front and centre of those that get of those characters that get cut, and the characters front and centre of those characters that should be kept, uh, or, or or even made more central. Uh, it's a little thing I like to call cut or kept because who's up for a cheesy game show catchphrase? Uh, and I thought the first half of this show I would start with looking at three characters that I think should be front and centre of those that get cut in the event that the uh, that the uh, the brand extension uh, comes to an end. And it should come as a shock to absolutely nobody who follows my work or opinions about wrestling that number one is Shane McMahon. Because, you know, my, my hatred for the whole part-time thing put to one side, just from a character perspective, Shane McMahon is a character who has no purpose and is completely out of sync now with the vision WWE were supposed to have been building since January, which was one without authority figures. Shane McMahon has gone from an authority figure who sometimes wrestles when he has to, to a guy who isn't really an authority figure, but sort of is, who wrestles when he fancies it. And that's an issue for me. And I don't see what that character adds to narratives or to the wider shared universe of WWE by coming out, calling himself best in the world and bullying the other ring announcer. It strikes me that this version of Shane McMahon has been fine from an incidental point of view with the feud with The Miz, which I have to admit turned out better than I think anyone might have anticipated, including the match at WrestleMania itself, so kudos there. But long term, if you want to start challenging the issues 
uh, that WWE face. And if you want to start getting that product back on track, I think first of all, you've got to start by looking at the characters that are underserved or to put it another way, underserving of the wider fictional universe because WWE's product is a shared universe. It has been for a long time. It works best when it embraces that ideal and that means that you've got to think of every character, in my opinion at least, as a conducive element of a larger whole and which ones are moving with the tide and helping that tide flow and which ones are actually disrupting it and blocking it. And not only does Shane McMahon bring negatives with his part-time status, he's now, as I said, rendered utterly redundant as a character because we don't have general managers on TV and we don't have commissioners on TV and WWE purportedly, you know, are meant to be moving away from that kind of a product, or at least they said, of course, now we have Roman Reigns attacking Vince McMahon again and we have Shane McMahon coming out making matches and all the rest of it, so in actual fact, we haven't moved anywhere. That meta-narrative has been well covered on, on other shows, in other columns, I'm not going to cover it here because this is sports entertainment is dead where we take a a character and fiction focus and put that front and center and Shane McMahon is is a is not just a performer who in a meta sense presents problems but like I say is a character who does so as well and the thing is there's there's a way you can write him out quite naturally at this point you know it feels like the Miz issue isn't done yet so let them have one more match maybe at Money in the Bank you know, draw a line under it. I don't know what kind of a match you have, but make it some kind of gimmick stipulation. And you can write Shane McMahon as a character off of TV for good from that point and get Miz back to being who the Miz should be, which is that ingratiating villain who likes to rub his uh, unlikely and some might say unworthy success in the faces of others. He can't do that for long, for now as long as Shane McMahon is around. Uh, and Shane McMahon himself has no reason to be around. He shouldn't be exercising the powers that he's exercising because of the continuity issues that presents with what was said back in January. And if that's the case, he shouldn't really be around at all because that's his primary purpose from a fictional perspective is to be an authority figure. So if there's no authority figures, he shouldn't he shouldn't technically exist in in WWE's fictional universe in my mind. But but you know this this is all road. It it goes without saying. I definitely think, however, you know certainly if you move back to a single roster system, which I will forever say is by far and away the best way to run a wrestling company. I think because it naturally bottlenecks talent and forces a sense of competitiveness in the locker room that can otherwise start to lack as people begin to wait their turns. In that kind of an environment, you have to start getting ruthless with the characters that you cut. And when Shane McMahon is a character who originates as an authority figure in a shared universe that should no longer function with authority figures, he becomes utterly redundant because it's no point just having a wrestler who sometimes wrestles, right? So absolutely number one on the cut queue is Shane McMahon to the shock of absolutely nobody but what may come as a bit of a shock is my number two pick for characters that I think should be cut and that is Finn Balor slash the demon now let me explain that before you start (laughs) getting up in arms about it because I'm a Finn Balor fan myself what I mean by that and it's something I've covered with my good friend Maverick on the right side of the pond is make a choice. Which is it? Is it the demon or is it Finn Balor? We've we've kind of done this dual identity thing for a while now and because it's never really been solidified what it actually means, it feels like we get a different, you know, a different kind of um, 
uh, betrayal or presentation or definition of the character every time the demon turns up. And it's problematic to me because, you know, why... As as my friend Maverick once said, The Undertaker wasn't just The Undertaker on special occasions. And we've kind of used that as a glib refrain since. But it's got a, a worthy point at its heart. I think, you know, Finn Balor in the leather jacket, the kind of swaggering, cocky, good-looking dude that he is, I think works. Especially when uh, he's got a championship over his shoulder. And I think people have been a little harsh on the notion that he doesn't work that way. I'd be interested to see in particular what he could do with that kind of cockiness if he ever became a villain. And I think in a world where you have a Seth Rollins walking around as a hero had to earn the cheers, then maybe Finn Balor should be that swaggering, cocky villain instead. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that version of him you pick. You could alternatively pick the demon and have him be this augmented supernatural competitor who, you know, haunts people's lives or stalks them or, you know, has a supernatural edge to it and and fill those though that spot left by the Undertaker if anybody ever could. But I think by trying to walk the line between the two without really fully defining what prompts the demon to come out. We can sort of imply and infer that, you know, that the demon is an augmented form of Finn Balor, a kind of tougher, stronger, faster version of him, almost like the Incredible Hulk is for Bruce Banner, though perhaps one that can be controlled. But these are all nuances that have been failed to be explored, and if they wanted to explore them, then I'm all in. But it doesn't look like they have any intention of doing that, and it doesn't look frankly like they have any capability of doing it any kind of in any kind of interesting way so i think the best bet at this point is to place your bets on one or the other have him be finn Bal- finn or have him be balor because being finn balor it's just proving to be a little bit odd alternatively i think maybe the performer finn should do more physically to try and define the two characters instead because if Balor is meant to be an augmented form of Finn, if he's stronger, faster, more aggressive, then that should be reflected in the way the matches watch aesthetically. But that's kind of a a, a, a a kernel of a wider issue that I have with wrestling in general these days, which is where everybody does everything to everybody else, so nothing actually really ends up being unique. You know, when you have a cruiserweight suplexing a super heavyweight and a strongman comes and does the same thing, it's less impressive. So the strongman then, in order to look impressive, has to do what the cruiserweight does, which makes what the cruiserweight does look less impressive. And so everybody loses. And what you have in Finn Balor doing the same thing as Finn and Balor both is kind of a microcosm of that issue. Because they both wrestle the same way, you're asking me to commit to a fictional idea by using my imagination, which I'm not necessarily against, but give me something, you know, at least show me some effort on your part to make that difference translate in a very literal uh, and, and tangible way with what I'm watching, because at the minute it doesn't, you know, Finn has spurts of aggression when he's Finn, um, but from, and, I, and I often enjoy them because that's often a sign of the better told stories that he's had in the ring, I think. But I'd rather him save those kinds of uh, aggressive outbursts for when he's in demon form so that I, as a viewer and a fan, can get a better idea of the relationship between the two, which is something else they can explore. You know, is is Bala something he embraces? Is it something he fights with? Is it something he abhors? Is it something he enjoys? Is it like a drug? Can he get addicted to it? There's a whole scope there, but there's there's no attempt to explore it. So because of that, and because I can't see that changing, I have to say that either Finn or Bala 
should join Shane McMahon at the forefront of the characters that get cut in the event of a single roster system. Because in a single roster system, it's vitally important that performers are put in a position where they can excel and succeed the most. Because, again, it bottlenecks talent. You can't have everybody be a top dog. You, it doesn't work that way. So, um, and, and a lot of people would say that that's a bad thing. I actually think it's a good thing because I think it betters the product. And I think that that has been self-evident. And I think one of the, the terrible aspects of a brand extension, one reason why this one should absolutely end, is that it creates an inherent sense of lackadaisicalness where underqualified talent kind of get, get put in, in overprivileged positions. Um, I mean, the fact Mojo Rawley is getting screen time is something nobody should ever have to put up with, frankly. Which brings me to the third character, and it's not Mojo Rawley that I would cut, though I would cut him. I think in front of him has to be Baron Corbin. For the life of me, I have no idea why Baron Corbin continues to get big wins on TV, continues to get put in main event spots. I imagine that it's because WWE and the bigwigs believe that the vitriol that is directed at Baron Corbin is somehow a vitriol that has emerged from great work as a performer, where in actual fact it's vitriol that's emerged because of ongoing shoddy work as a performer. There are a few characters that make me physically cringe and I mean this in a literal sense, physically cringe when the minute that they turn up, you know, it, he looks stupid, the way he talks is stupid, the way he acts, always banging on about things he he was instead of things he is, you know, doesn't exactly, to my mind, make him a threat. And the fact that he's getting pins over the universal champion, my guy Seth, really stick in the craw. So I think corporate baron, and, and the thing is that the, the other thing is, you know, similarly with Shane, this is a character that's totally redundant now. He's not corporate Baron Corbin anymore. He hasn't been since December of last year. And yet the character has failed to transition away from that. And this is the bizarre uh, issue that, that recurs time and again with WWE's product. As it seems to have absolutely no conscious recognition of things that have happened. Um... So I think corporate Baron Corbin needs to be cut, but that's not to say that the performer should be cut. I've actually been a proponent of Baron Corbin for a long time. I think he's a talented performer. I think he has a certain amount of talent in the ring, but this is an issue of a character not allowing the performer to really show what they can do best. I think we've seen moments of remarkable effectiveness when Baron Corbin was playing the Lone Wolf character. And one of the things I liked about the Lone Wolf character was that it wasn't hammered home it wasn't on the nose they didn't flog it like a dead horse but it there was enough there to to have you believe that he was what he said he was that he was a guy who had no friends he was a guy who didn't buddy up to anybody regardless of whether they were heels or faces themselves i mean i remember that one of my sort of moments that i felt vindicated as a support early supporter of baron corbin was when he took out braun Strowman in the 2017 royal rumble but if that were to happen tomorrow you wouldn't buy it because of this ridiculously cringeworthy character that they continue to push with him that just doesn't suit him. It doesn't seem to suit his talents as a performer. And the character, again, like Shane McMahon, is out of sync with what should be or what was purported to be the overall vision of WWE, which was this idea that the fans are, you know, that the authority and we're going to have less authority figures, no GMs, no commissioners. So what does a simpering, sycophantic suit-wearing, would-be corporate bureaucrat, what role does that character have to play? And why have you given it to the guy who was the lone wolf, 
who was a far cry away from everything that he now represents, who wasn't simpering, wasn't sycophantic, didn't care what other people thought, wasn't prepared to start teaming up with guys like Bobby Lashley and Drew McIntyre in that kind of weird, sort of really just not very convincing trio of of villains that somehow managed to make them all look like, all make them look worse off than they were. I'm trying to temper my words to not get too carried away here. You know, he like I said, he was the lone wolf. I remember when he was in NXT, they it might have been on Breaking Ground, if you remember that that documentary series they did. That they, they followed him around, and he would go off and he'd do things on his own in real life. You know, he'd go to gigs on his own and stuff, and he'd talk about how he doesn't really like people, get on with people. And how many times have we heard it said about wrestling that the best characters take someone's natural personality, dial it up to eleven? That's what the Lone Wolf was. And the Lone Wolf was a subtly produced character that allowed them enough kind of malleability to do different things with, rather than this kind of caricature that corporate Baron Corbin has become. So if you merge these rosters, and I genuinely hope that they do, I think there's definitely a place for a guy like Baron Corbin, but it has to be as the character that he was and not the character that he is, because the character that he is gets immediately swallowed up in that kind of competitive environment and lost in the shuffle and exposed even more than he already is as uh, as a uh, you know an, an unsuitable uh, performer or character let me say for the spot that he's in you know he's he's he, come on man he he makes people turn the channel off and that's reflected in the ratings WWE need to realize that. So, um, But if he went back to being the lone wolf, if he went back to being that brutal, kind of unfeeling, uncaring, utterly unsympathetic, uh, a ronin, I guess is a good word to use, uh, then I think there might be a spot for him, a cutthroat. You know, like Bronn in Game of Thrones, like a sellsword type guy. Um, and I think that that could work, and I think that that would make him stand out, in a, in, especially against someone like, like thinking about Baron Corbin as the lone wolf coming up against someone like Drew McIntyre, that's something I can get excited about. Seeing Baron Corbin as corporate Corbin come up against anybody, let alone beat anybody, let alone beat the Universal Champion, that's something that's going to make me turn off. So I think cut corporate Corbin, reproduce him as lone wolf Corbin. Cut Finn or cut Balor, uh, and reproduce him as one or the other, and just cut Shane McMahon full stop. So those are the three characters that would be front and centre of my cut queue if WWE do come to end this brand extension, as I hope they do. I'm going to take us to a brief advert break here, and when we come back, I'm going to talk about the three characters that I believe should be at the very forefront of characters that they keep, if not promote more than they have done currently. And I'm going to try and avoid some of the obvious picks, you know, because there are guys that you know will... goes without saying you keep them and you push them. So I'm going to try and, and go outside of that remit a little bit. So... More on that in a second. Stay with me, guys. Here's an advert. All right, welcome back to the show, ladies and gents. Thanks for sticking with me. And again, if you have any thoughts on any of the subject matter that I discuss on the show, make sure you let it be known. I'll plug the ways you can do that a second time at the end of the show. Okay, so three characters then that I would keep or or even make more prominent in the event of a single roster system being incurred in WWE. And first up is El Idolo 
Andrade Cien Almas, now known as Andrade. And two reasons for this. First of all, obviously, a phenomenal performer. I was over the moon, absolutely elated, when it became clear Andrade was one of the last... I think he was one of the last three or four in in the Royal Rumble this year. Um, and I, that was tremendous. It was great to see him in that spot. And what he has shown time again is that he can own that spot when he's putting it. And that's reflected in the fact he's regularly been having among the very best matches on WWE television. Been pipped to the post in my retrospectives every month for TV match of the month by at least one other contender so far. But he's regularly placed second or third in my kind of uh, my shortlisting process for that. And against a, a you know a, mar- a variety of guys, and Andrade is one of those characters that you immediately put in dream feuds all the time. Like you go, oh, him versus Seth, yes, man. Him versus Ray, yes, please. Him versus Finn, you know, Ali, whoever it is, it automatically seems to become a dream match, and that says something for the performer. But Andrade, and in typical fashion, it's been forgotten on the main roster, had a very interesting and I thought very unique character arc in NXT that can give you a wealth of material when he comes up against other characters in WWE's fictional universe. And it's all on Zelina Vega, who came along and refocused Andrade and stopped him being a party animal and stopped him being laid back and stopped him being a waster and brought him to his martial uh, to his martial prowess that he enjoys now, to his kind of purest martial form uh, that allowed him to become NXT champion and that has seen him get the better of a number of opponents since coming to the main roster, getting down to those final few in the Royal Rumble. And you can really plug that for a lot. The idea that Zelina Vega is a mastermind essentially replicates the relationship, and this may sound like a strange comparison, but essentially replicates the same relationship Paul Heyman had with Brock Lesnar. And that was a relationship they were able to weaponize in storyline form on multiple occasions. The difference with Andrade and Zelina is it's more interesting. And and I think people would get more out of it. When Zelina interferes in his matches, it's always fun. And it always adds an extra bit of psychological intrigue and helps elevate those matches to the next uh, to the next level, to the next critical level, I guess you could say. Um, but most of all, I think there's a retro tone to the relationship between those two characters that reminds me very much of the relationship Macho King Randy Savage had with Sensational Queen Sherry back in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And you get the sense that the minute Andrade starts to lose too much, Zelina Vega may instead look to another source of success instead. Uh, With Savage and Sherry, what emerged, especially in the Ultimate Warrior match at WrestleMania 7, was a sense of, excuse me, Sherry being a parasite feeding off of off of Savage. And when Savage lost that career-ending match against Warrior, it became clear that as a host, he no longer had any sustenance to provide Sherry, so Sherry turned on him quite rapidly. And I could easily see that being replicated by Andrade and Zelina Vega in time. You don't want to pull on that trigger too soon because I think you can get plenty of life out of that relationship. And I think that that lends itself very well to a main event level in particular because of the drama that that relationship generates. Uh, and not just in the ring as well, but also, uh, you know, on the microphone, we've seen many segments in the past that I've really enjoyed where Zelina does Andrade's talking for him while he batters the crap out of a punching bag in the background and stuff like that. It's like a, a you, you, you have to fight a, a kind of a two-pronged enemy when you come up against those two. And that just, you know, it naturally creates intrigue and naturally creates story material 
whether you pit Andrade up against a Samoa Joe, for example, who is a master of intimidation, does he intimidate Andrade, does he intimidate Zelina Vega, you pit him up against a Seth Rollins, who is an architect and a mastermind, and how does he begin to unravel the the tapestry of their relationship and get the better of it, you put him up against a Finn or a Bala, particularly the demon who is in an augmented form, then that creates a, you know an interesting dichotomy, you put him up against a, 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 an Ali, you know, who's about inspiring the best out of people? Does he try and bring the best out of Andrade and tell him you don't? Zelina Vega is a toxic influence. There's so much story material there out of that relationship that it seems a, a, a shame that it doesn't get used more. And as a result, in if again, if it comes to a single roster system, like I was saying in a strange way with with Lone Wolf Baron Corbin, I think that 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 can occupy a unique role and and make Andrade a unique addition to a single roster that should absolutely be be used and absolutely be front and center. For the upper mid card initially, and I could easily see them getting that main event level um, kind of position eventually. But that's that's my my number one pick. My second pick is the name I've I've just mentioned there, and that's Samoa Joe. And the reason is, I think, and I've said this since Great Balls of Fire, Samoa Joe is the Brock Lesnar that they've always wanted, except for he's around full time. And if they'd have had him beat Brock Lesnar at Great Balls of Fire, they could have had a full time Brock Lesnar for cheaper. Because Samoa Joe carries exactly the same sense of legitimacy that Brock Lesnar has. He carries the same set of sense of threat that Brock Lesnar has. But where with Brock Lesnar, you also need to employ Paul Heyman, employ Paul Heyman. With Samoa Joe, you have the whole package because he could talk, he's clever, he's brutal. If you're a Batman fan, you're probably going to enjoy this reference. If you're not, it might be lost on you. But he reminds me very much of Bane, you know, because he's got the physical prowess. He's got the martial ability. He knows what to do to, to hurt people. But on top of that, he has a towering intellect as well. One thing that sets Samoa Joe apart from everybody else is that he's a brutish monster but he's very eloquent, he's very intelligent, he's very manipulative. We've seen him play psychological games with Brock Lesnar by attacking Paul Heyman. We've seen him play psychological games with AJ Styles by targeting his family. We've seen him play psychological games with guys like Mustafa Ali by trying to physically intimidate them with Seth Rollins by ambushing them physically and, and talking trash to him while he does it. Samoa Joe, I've described him in the past, I have done already on, on this show a few seconds ago, as a master of intimidation. And in a single roster system, particularly one that breeds a sense of competitive locker room environment where only the very best get to be at the very top, Samoa Joe is exactly the kind of performer who I think begins to truly shine in that kind of an environment and can easily have his best qualities overlooked in an environment where the the talent is spread so widely across so vast an expanse as you're trying to fill with two, three hour or one, three hour, one, two hour brands and, you know, umpteen four hour pay-per-views and whatnot. And what's more is I think you could easily then make Samoa Joe, as he should be already, but for some reason isn't, because bizarrely we think corporate Corbin's better at it. Um, Samoa Joe has, to my mind, top villain written all over him. And that's exactly the position his character should come to occupy, which is why he's on this list for me. Because he has, you know, again, he has that whole package. Um, and he he brings to the table... You know, there's, there's, it's, it's a real kind of old school wrestling tradition when you think about it, isn't it? The monster heel and the mouthpiece. 
You could go all the way back to, to the 80s. My go-to for that example is always Yokozuna and Jim Cornette. Yokozuna was my sort of first monster in WWE. Vader then with Jim Cornette as well, but Yokozuna in particular had a sense of mystery. And it feels very rare to me. I mean, you know, maybe some of you guys listening can give me some examples, but I struggle to think of any instance where you've had a character who is so brilliantly brought together that traditional tandem in a single instance like Samoa Joe does. He's the monster heel and he's the mouthpiece and he's the psychological heel all rolled into one. That makes him so wonderfully dangerous. And thinking about what that could do, not just against some of the other heroes in some of the heroes in WWE, but also some of the other villains in WWE. Seeing Samoa Joe rub up against them and if you've read any of my uh, columns that preceded the book or the book itself, 101 WWE matches to see before you die, you'll know that I'm a big proponent of heel versus heel. I think it's a vastly untapped resource in professional wrestling. And the idea of Samoa Joe rubbing shoulders with some of those other villains, someone like Andrade and, and Zelina Vega, as I said a few moments ago, again creates natural story material, I think, because he's such a unique villain. And what you'll find about all three of my picks on the keep queue here is that they're all, I think, unique. And that's the key when you've got a single roster system, is to bring unique characters that can form a very vibrant landscape and a very vibrant skyline for your shared universe in the event of a single roster. Which brings me to my last pick here, my last keep queue, yeah, my, uh, member of the keep queue, which is Bray Wyatt. And thankfully, Bray Wyatt has been getting a bit of a repackage. It's interesting what they're doing with this Firefly—I can't say it—Firefly Funhouse. Say that five times fast. Um, but I think what's important to grasp with Bray Wyatt—I've been banging on with this for for years now, uh, since in fact WrestleMania twenty, uh, sorry, WrestleMania thirty-two uh, in two thousand sixteen. And it's not something that I often bang on about. It's not. It's it's kind of rooted in a sports entertainment idea, so it's not something that you'll hear me, um, uh, in general terms, a concept you'll hear me champion a lot. But I think he needs to be a hero. He needs to be positioned as a babyface. Or more specifically, when he makes his return to WWE TV, they need to be willing to at least position him against the villains on the show. Because I think that's where the character will come into his own. It's easy to forget that he's had a number of, of encounters with Triple H over the years, and every time he has, the fans have, have responded in a very intriguing way. They've been very excited at the prospect of those two characters coming together. And there's a reason for that. I've always defined Bray Wyatt the same way, and I think he'll he'll remain very much this as well, though WWE don't seem to realise it, that he is the physical manifestation of another character's worst fears or insecurities. He is fear-made flesh. Uh, and he will always pop up in a character's life when they are at their most emotionally vulnerable. When Daniel Bryan couldn't be the authority. When uh, Dean Ambrose was about to end Seth Rollins inside Hell in a Cell. When uh, the shield was breaking apart. Um, it's when Chris Jericho returned to diminishing returns. I could go on. The list is quite extensive at this point. Um, but how fascinating... Is that going to be if you pit him against, as I said earlier, villains in 
WWE? Who doesn't want to see a villain's psyche picked apart? Who doesn't want to see a villain's worst fear? Who doesn't get a kick out of seeing a villain on the back foot because of being faced down by a supernatural force? We see it all the time in in comic books and movies and and other kind of pop culture media. Indeed, you know, you think about Avengers films and stuff. Some of the coolest moments are where the heroes rally and come back to put the villain on the back foot. And I think that Bray Wyatt is a character that can do that absolutely brilliantly because Bray Wyatt is a character, like I said, that makes that that, that is fear made flesh. And that makes him as well, incidentally, um, a fantastic vehicle for character development. Now, I would say in general, in WWE, it's often the heroes who need more character development. But the villains can benefit from it because they can so often become one note. They can so often become caricatures rather than characters. But thinking about, you know, what Bray Wyatt would would come to be facing down a Samoa Joe. You know, what what makes Samoa Joe tick? What are his fears? Because he puts on this veneer of, of psychological and physical invulnerability. So Bray Wyatt being able to... to to sink his teeth into Samoa Joe's psyche would be fascinating. And that's just one immediate example. You know, seeing Bray Wyatt sink his teeth into Drew McIntyre's psyche. You know, what is Drew McIntyre's worst fears and insecurities? Interestingly, could very much mirror exactly what happened with Roman Reigns. Anyone but you, Drew. You know, so immediately you start to see, you could probably hear the smile in my voice when I say that, you can start to see the kind of intriguing possibilities. So it's good that, They've repackaged Bray Wyatt. I'm interested to see where they go with this Firefly Funhouse uh, idea. But I think what's important is they need to realise The Undertaker didn't become The Undertaker until he turned babyface. I don't think Bray Wyatt can become everything Bray Wyatt can be until he starts being at least positioned against villains on the show. Because when he starts getting positioned against villains on the show, he goes from being the ineffectual villain losing to heroes to being the badass hero being able to get the better psychologically of the villain and it's just realizing that just that slight tilt in the angle of the character and the way it's presented on tv can unlock so much potential and sometimes that's the key it's just figuring out the best way to angle that one specific character in their approach to others and suddenly you know you re-imbue them with fresh life i think there's something to be said as well with the notion that bray wyatt probably has a lot fresh much more fresher material to glean from facing down some of the villains because it looks like he's on Monday Night Raw though obviously we're talking in this instance about a single roster system so you could start pitting him against you know Andrade again like I mentioned earlier you could pit him against um uh Drew McIntyre like I mentioned earlier I'm I'm, I'm struggling to think of of heels on w, in WWE right now be interested to see against Robert Root who's recently had a a, a a bit of a, 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 a an awakening. I was going to say a rude awakening then, but I I forwent the pun. Uh, so thank, think yourselves lucky there. So yeah, point being, you know, position him against those villains, and you can still position him against the heroes as well. Because Lord knows, listen, I would love to see Bray Wyatt and Mustafa Ali with their com- conflicting philosophies uh, against one another. So. Bray Wyatt, absolutely on my keep cue. So there there you are then, folks. We're at the end of the show. Three characters that I would immediately cut. Three characters that I would definitely keep and, if not, push a little bit more in the event that a single roster system gets reincurred in WWE, as I desperately hope it does, because the current state of affairs just cannot continue. It is unwatchable at this point, and I mean that in literal terms. So thanks for listening. If you've got any thoughts on any of the comments that I've made or choices that I've made on this show, let them be known. And let me know your picks. 
what are the three characters you would immediately cut in the event of a single roster system and what are the three characters you would want to keep if not push further to the forefront and let me know your obscure picks you know because some of them go without saying so don't tell me Seth Rollins or AJ Styles guys like that tell me your obscure picks people who you think should absolutely go and people you think should get a bigger share of the spotlight you can do so by tweeting me at LOP plan you can find me on Facebook at Samuel plan you can email me at samuel.plan101 at gmail.com you could drop me a comment on any of my podcasts or column posts on lordsofpain.net or even a comment on blog talk radio or of course you could sign up to lop forums get yourself involved in all the discussions and all of the threads in our forum the best corner of the iwc to be a part of so no end of ways that you can get in contact so let me know your thoughts i will of course return next week and i will probably be Back on Friday with the right side of the pond. And by the way, folks, we have a special coming up this weekend on Lords of Pain Radio to celebrate our 7 millionth listen or something like that. I'll probably be a part of that too. So you've still got plenty more planned to come this week. But after that, I will see you next Wednesday. Have a good one, folks.